Would you please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Here in Acts chapter 15, we find what is commonly called the Jerusalem Council. It was an important meeting between the church in Jerusalem and certain delegates from the church in Antioch, about 250 miles from Jerusalem. The reason for the council was that a particular controversy, a very serious controversy, had arisen in the church. The church in Antioch, we're told in verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these men came from Judea or the church of Jerusalem. And so they were teaching these Gentiles that they were coming to faith in Christ. They were being added to the church. They were being baptized, but they were being told they needed to be circumcised. And on top of that, they needed to obey certain Mosaic laws if they were to be saved. Remember the words I quoted last Sunday of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, where he said, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Doesn't matter who comes and teaches it, who they are, where they came from, who may have sent them, if they preach any other gospel than what they had been taught, he said, let them be anathema or cursed. You think of it, these Gentiles had this good news preached to them that the way of salvation was not through following certain customs and regulations and so forth, but it was through simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through Him and Him alone that they received the forgiveness of sins. It was through Christ alone they found peace with God. It was through Christ alone they could sing, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Then these certain men come from Jerusalem. They come down to Antioch and they say, oh, wait a minute, not so fast. If you want to be saved, you need to be circumcised and follow the customs of Moses. They were teaching a works-based salvation. Oh, no, no, they might say, you have to have faith in Christ. We believe that. And they did. You must believe in Him. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sins that He was raised the third day. You must believe all of that, but... And that's when they got into trouble. But, but you also must be circumcised in order to be saved. So they taught a faith plus works salvation. Some think, well, what's wrong with that? God helps those who help themselves, doesn't He? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? (laughs) No, it's not. But... That's what a lot of people think. God helps those who help themselves. Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with that. That would mean that God saves a person on the basis of what Christ has done and 
what they have done. Now, the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace and by grace alone. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, grace alone means that it can't be by works. It cannot be by works of any kind. Forget circumcision. That's not an issue anymore for us. But there are other things that people add to salvation, add to the faith in Christ. They say you need to be baptized. You need to join a church. You need to give so much money. You need to do good works. Then you'll be saved. That's a works. That's a faith plus works salvation. Paul said very clearly that if you add works to grace, you no longer have grace. No grace. (laughs) What about faith? Isn't that a work? Well, not at all. Faith is simply an empty hand that receives God's free, unmerited gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We must come to Him as an empty-handed beggar. Nothing in my hand I bring. That's how a person comes to Christ. Nothing else. Thinking of an empty-handed beggar made me think of all the, the panhandlers we see nowadays on the street corners. Now, I don't know their situations and why they're in that situation. But I have some problems with what they're doing. First, I don't think they should be begging for money if they could be working and earning a living. The Bible says if a man won't work, let, don't let him eat. They need to be out there working, something, doing something. But the second thing I don't like is they, they do absolutely nothing in return for the money they receive. Nothing. They don't provide a service. They used to, someone would get out there and wash your windshield. But they don't even do that anymore. They just hold out their hand and want the money. They don't give you a product in return. They just reach out, take the money, no strings attached. And I got thinking about that and then I realized that's exactly what we're like when we come to God. When we come to Him with faith alone, we have nothing to bring. We have nothing to offer. The only thing that we offer to Him is our sin that needs to be forgiven. So we're those empty-handed beggars looking for salvation. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you have no money. Come and buy and eat without money and without price. The gift of God. What a wonderful thing. Well, let's look at this Council of Jerusalem again. Now, the church in Antioch brought the matter to the church in Jerusalem. After much dispute and debate about the matter, we're told in verse 7 that Peter rose up. And Peter began to recount God's dealings with the Gentiles and how God had chosen him that by the mouth, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word and believe the gospel, uh, uh, the word of the gospel and believe. And that's what happened at the house of Cornelius. You remember, that was in Acts chapter 10. Well, what happened there in verse 8, he tells us, so God, who knows the heart, Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. Here's Cornelius, a Gentile, uncircumcised. His whole family, uncircumcised. All of his relatives and friends, uncircumcised. And they believe and God pours out the Holy Spirit on the whole bunch of them. (laughs) That's a wonderful thing. And he said, He did that just like He did to us when we believed. 
He made no distinction, verse 9, between us, the Jews, who believe, and them purifying their hearts by faith. No mention whatsoever of circumcision involved in their conversions. Circumcision, therefore, must not be essential to salvation. Their premise, you must be circumcised to be saved, was wrong. You're not saved by your circumcision at all. In fact, he goes on to say, we are, we are saved just the same way as they are. We Jews, the same way they are. Now, he doesn't say it right here, but I believe it's strongly implied. Uh, who are we to argue with God? Now, he actually says that in chapter 11 when he's talking about the house of Cornelius being saved. He says in chapter 11, verse 17, Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as He gave us, the Holy Spirit, when we believed on the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could withstand God? You don't want to argue with God. God said they're saved, they're saved. Don't let these Pharisees tell you something else. No, it's by faith alone in Christ alone. So Peter finishes what he's going to say. And then Barnabas And Paul, it doesn't say what they actually said, but they recounted the many miracles and wonders God performed by their hands among the Gentiles. God is in this, He's showing. God wouldn't perform these miracles. They didn't perform them, the apostles. It was through their hands, but it was God doing it. Why would He do that if He wasn't saving them? It looks like God is blessing and pouring out His blessing through these miracles, healings and so forth. He's showing that He's accepting them. Again, the absence of circumcision. And then finally, James, the brother of the Lord, spoke. And James said that Peter's account lines up perfectly with the Old Testament Scriptures. In verse 15, he says, And with this, The words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he goes on to quote an example from the book of Amos. He takes it to the Scriptures. That was, I believe, the clenching argument. The Holy Scriptures. You see, we're to test everything, even our experiences, by the Word of God. Everything must come to the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, And that is the infallible Word of God. Now, I'm sure he and the others said much more than we have recorded here in the book of Acts. This is just a very brief summary. But then James concludes with his own judgment on the matter at hand and with a way forward. And that's what we're going to begin reading in verse 19 this morning. Would you please follow me as I read verses 19? Uh, And I believe I'm going to go ahead and read all the way through verse 34. Verse 19, therefore I judge, this is James speaking, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, 
namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter to them, the apostles and the elders and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Since we have heard that some uh, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. I'm going to stop right there. So here we see that uh, there are three things. We see uh, a letter is proposed, and then a letter is composed, and then a letter is delivered. I went pretty well with my uh, alliteration there, but couldn't couldn't finish it off. But you get the idea. The, the letter was proposed by James, and they thought it was a good idea, so they composed it, and then they sent it to the church in Antioch. So after James concluded his argument with the Scripture, he said uh, there in verse 19, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now he says, I ju- uh, he says, I judge that we should not. Now there's been debate on how strong of a word is that, and and uh, one commentator said it's it's more than just an opinion, but it's less than a decree. Uh, he wasn't speaking like a pope and speaking ex cathedra, and and it was the word of God, but he was is carrying some weight. It did carry the weight and it carried the consciences of the rest of the whole church, as we'll see in the letter they wrote. But he said, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Uh, The matter of circumcision isn't specifically mentioned here, but perhaps it didn't need to be. That's what they had been discussing and debating for quite some time, it says. And the arguments for circumcision or for anything else being necessary for salvation had been so soundly and scripturally refuted, he didn't need to say anything else. It was clear. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. The New International Version says uh, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And that's what they were doing. They were believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gentiles were freely coming in, freely receiving the Gospel. And they're putting up the roadblocks. No, you need to do this and then you need to do that. They were making it difficult for the Gentiles. In fact, Jesus 
says what I believe Peter is quoting here. He says that you experts of the law, woe to you. You load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Here were these poor Gentiles being told they need to become Jewish. They need to follow all the regulations. They need to become proselytes. But then he says in verse 20, and here's where it gets sticky. He said, but, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. We wonder, well, wait a minute, where did that come from? I thought it was all about circumcision. Now they're talking about all these other things, about things strangled and from blood and so forth. Well, one of these we, we see is sexual immorality. That's from the moral law of God. But the other three are part of the ceremonial law found in the book of Leviticus, chapters 17 and 18. They were part, uh, but, but these things, though, were all four of them were part and parcel with the pagan lifestyle and the pagan religions. Uh, they incorporated wickedness into their demonic ritual. Now, when you think and hear of someone who's recently come to faith in Christ and you try to think of a good book to recommend and some, some help and guides to them, can you imagine giving a book that dealt with issues like abstaining from things strangled and from drinking blood? They'd look at you like, what in the world are you talking about? Where did that come from? Well, that's not an issue we deal with or have to deal with in our day, but it, it certainly was in this first century. This was one often the kind of baggage these Gentiles were coming in with. They had been doing this kind of stuff perhaps all of their life. And when you come and become a Christian, you bring in baggage. Uh, someone likened it to Lazarus with his grave clothes when he comes out. He still has his grave clothes on. And people become Christians. They still have their grave clothes on. And they need to be taken away. And the baggage needs to be removed. And, and as, uh, as Kurt Daniel said, you need to unpack that baggage and leave the whole suitcase outside. You shouldn't have anything to do with this kind of stuff. Well, it's obviously part of the discussion and the debate that had been going on. The most important issue was the question of salvation. Uh, but these were important matters as well. Not for matters of salvation, but for matters of peace and the well-being of the church. James said that we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles returning to God. Well, what about the believing Jews? Are we to be concerned at all about troubling them? Well, yes, we are. He's showing. Yes, we're to be concerned with them. Yes, we're not to make it difficult for the Gentiles coming in, but the Gentiles need to be careful they're not making it difficult for the Jews who might have certain scruples and have these reservations or, or they may think this is just awful. We can't even associate with people like this. But you see, what we have here is a two-way street. It goes both ways. The Gentiles need to be careful for the Jews and the Jews need to be careful for their Gentile Brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 21 really, I believe, is the key. It explains why he's bringing these things in. He says, for Moses, in verse 21, for Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And he's, what he's saying is that Moses being read, they know the Bible 
And they know these things are forbidden in the Scriptures under the ceremonial law. And here you are doing them. But then also the pagan cult practices, uh, the, the demonic worship that's going on. These are things that would offend their beloved brothers in Christ. Uh, someone said in such contexts where Moses' teachings were well known and highly respected, Jewish scruples were sensitive and out of love, they should not be violated. They weren't putting them under bondage. James or the others in Jerusalem weren't putting them under bondage that they had to keep these laws, but they needed to keep the law of love, which means I'm concerned about my fellow Christians. Later in the book of Acts, when Paul returns to Jerusalem, James takes him aside and, and tells him, Paul tells about all the wonderful things God's doing to the Gentiles. James says, speaks of the great number, thousands of Jews who become believers. And he says, and all of them are zealous for the law. And you need to be careful, Paul, with your companions. There's a, a, these men are taking a vow. I recommend that you take the same vow and you show them because they think that you just don't want to have anything at all to do with Moses. They think they're going to think the worst of you. So Paul did. He complied. But you see, there's a couple things we need to keep in mind when we think of what's going on here. First of all, this was the early church. It was soon after the inauguration of the New Covenant through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's when the New Covenant was inaugurated. And things were changing. Many things were changing. The fact that Gentiles are coming in. What a change. And they're not required to become Jewish. They're not required to be circumcised and all this. They're coming in. They're filling up the churches. That's a big thing. And that brings problems with it as well. But then things were changing. Now, not only were the people of uh, the Gentiles, the people of God, the ceremonial law of Moses had been fulfilled in Christ and was passing away. Now, I say it was passing away. I want to be careful to not say it passed away. It was gone, never to be seen again. It was a, it was a transition. There were things that were happening. In fact, the book of Hebrews deals with this great transition that was taking place. And speaking of the new covenant, the writer says in chapter 8 of Hebrews, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, the covenant with Moses, obsolete. And what is obsolete is outdated and will soon disappear. It didn't disappear overnight, but it disappears. And that's what was going on. And we need to, we need to understand and be patient as we read this and say, well, why, why are they even talking about the law of Moses? Why did Paul even have to be, uh, do you think he needed to take this vow, this Nazarite vow and shave his head and all of that? Why did he do that? It was a transition. He wanted to be sensitive. Things were changing. It didn't all happen at once. And it wasn't easy for the devout Jew to let go. I wonder if, uh, if and when the Apostle Peter ever ate food that he'd always considered unclean. You remember when God sent him to the house of Cornelius? He said, he showed him this, all these different animals, these unclean animals. And what does God say? Take and eat. <laughs> Take and eat. Did Peter just start eating ham sandwiches? I mean, that would have been a difficult thing. I don't know. Maybe he did right away. But every Jew would have, wouldn't have it such an easy road. 
They'd have difficulties and, and their conscience might be screaming at them. I've been told all my life this is wrong and now you're saying, eat up. I don't know if I can do that. So they had sensitive consciences. And we need to understand that's the kind of thing that was going on during this, at least the first century. We need to be sensitive and don't run roughshod over the consciences of your Jewish brethren. That's what they're saying here. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is that they didn't have the New Testament yet. Paul's epistles, which contain the great teachings on Christian liberty, such as 1 Corinthians and the book of Romans, they didn't have those epistles yet that explain and develop and, uh, uh, those doctrines and, and give good guidance. And so that had not yet been written. So they were at a disadvantage. And that's why this letter is written. And it's written very simply. And they're focusing on some things that were big things or would have been big things in the eyes of these Jewish Christians. Here are all the, the ceremonial laws which the Jews were still keeping. Should we require the Gentiles to keep all of them so that they don't offend their Jewish brethren? Well, that would be, in fact, requiring them to become Jews. But they don't do that. They just focus on these four essentials, these necessary things. Well, let's look at them very briefly. First of all, James says that they ought to abstain from things polluted by idols. As Simon Kistemacher said, in our present day societal structures, this first stipulation is almost unintelligible. Abstain from things polluted by idols. If I said that to you, if I preached that to you, what would you do? <laughs> you wouldn't know what to do. You wouldn't know how to abstain from something polluted by an idol if you had to. But they knew what it was talking about. They knew, obviously, they would have understood it in that day. He's speaking of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, we're going to look at that in the second hour in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. But the meat that had been sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple, they had sacrificed animals. Just like the Jews had sacrificed their animals to God, they'd sacrificed their animals, and then the 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 priest of that religion uh, he wouldn't use it all, so he would take it and sell the rest of it to the to the town market, the marketplace, and then someone would come along and they'd see a good piece of meat at a very good price, and so they'd buy it. But then somebody says that was sacrificed to an idol, and they go, "Oh no, I don't have nothing to do with it." Now, that's what they're dealing with. And people say, that if, I, if I eat that meat, I'm participating in some way with this whole wicked idol worship. I can't do that. And she said, how their consciences would bother them. Now, what Paul goes on to explain in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 is that it's really okay to do that. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with doing that. You're just getting a good bargain piece of meat. Go ahead and enjoy it. But some people can't enjoy it because their conscience is bothering them. I feel like I'm indulging in idolatry. I can't do that. And so what they're saying here is don't do it for the sake of your Jewish brethren who might have a conscience about that. Now, that doesn't contradict what Paul says. It's a different situation. And Paul deals with different situations. He's not talking about situational ethics, but imagine... A church gathering like ours, and we're going to have lunch after this service, and, and you go there, and you're, you're looking at all the various things to eat, and you see over here, there's a, 
Boy, what a beautiful roast. Somebody says, I got that at the market. It was one of those sacrificed to an idol. And people back up, that was sacrificed to an idol. I can't eat that. Oh, I'll eat it, then I'll show you. I'm glad you'll leave more for me. And and just, what what do they do? They think, this isn't right. You're, You're offending your Jewish brothers. You need to abstain from that. I don't believe this was a, a permanent statute, but it was a temporary thing because of the need, because of the situation, because they were living in the midst of these Jewish believers. So, the second one that he lists is sexual immorality. Well, this is one of the one of four that's taken from the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Why, this is forever binding on men at all times. Some things are wrong sometimes. Some things are wrong all the time. This is one that's wrong all the time for everyone. In fact, we see admonitions throughout the Scriptures like flee, fornication, and so forth. But why does he specify this commandment? If that's a commandment we all believe and we all need to follow. Well, he mentions it here because the Gentiles were notoriously, or they were known for their Sexual immorality. Even fornication was often part of their pagan worship. Lust worship, it's called. Uh, they were demonic, but they, they had a reputation for indulging in sexual immorality. Uh, that's what Paul says in, in Ephesians. He says in, in chapter 4, he, he tells the Ephesians, he reminds them, you're, you're Gentiles. You, you weren't not part of the people of God. Now you're part of the people of God. And then he says, don't go on living like the Gentiles live. Don't do it. Because they, they've they lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality. And they indulge in every kind of impurity and so forth. Don't live like the Gentiles. And that's what he's saying right here in this letter. They're saying don't live like the Gentiles. You were saved out of that. That was one of the marks of a Gentile. And you need to make sure you don't do that. It says, don't even let it be named among you. Don't even let a hint of sexual immorality be named among you. Or any kind of impurity. And so, that's very easy. We need to see. That's why they did it. You'll offend your Jewish brothers, but it's also, you've come out of that. And you need to put it all behind you. Flee fornication. And then he says, from meat uh, of strangled animals. Or just as things strangled. You scratch your head and say, what? <laughs> what in the world is that thing strangled? Well, this refers to animals that were purposely killed by strangulation so that the blood was not properly drained. Now, some people like it that way. I hear it they tenderize the meat. Maybe some of you hunters could tell me that. I don't know, but it, it, maybe it's not good. Some meat, it might be good. But uh, properly koshered meat, which they could eat, was drained thoroughly. And they made sure the blood had all drained out. This is part of the Levitical law as well. And so you don't want to offend your brothers by eating things that are strangled. It's not a big thing. You can do that. And you can do it for the sake of your Jewish brothers. And then from blood. And this is actually the drinking of blood. John Stott said these four activities frequently coalesced in pagan temple worship. Uh, they had often bathed in the blood and just wicked things that they were doing. Don't even get near anything like that. But I like blood. Oh, don't even think like that anymore. For the sake of your Jewish 
brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the issue. And so, that's what he proposes. Now the letter composed, we find in verses 20 through through 29. Now, first thing I want you to notice in verse 23 is that they uh, they address them as brothers. Uh, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are in uh, the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Uh, that's an important thing. Uh, they call these Gentiles brethren. These, this largely Jewish church in Jerusalem is writing to this largely Jewish church in Antioch and they're calling them brothers. Now, we think nothing of that because we're all Gentiles. And we're used to calling each other brothers. And if a Jewish man believer came in and we called him a brother, he called us a brother, that wouldn't be anything. But back then, remember, they didn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. When God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius, the first thing that Peter said when he walked in, he says, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) I'm not even supposed to walk in your house. And now they're calling them brethren. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. You see, that's what unites us regardless of our color, our ethnicity, whatever it might be. It's because we're in Christ that we're joined together. And so they call them brethren. How important. If they belong to Christ, they are our brethren. And it's very important and vital to put this in the right perspective. Even in families, we do this. You know, families are fighting and they have fallouts. And say, listen, we're family. We need to get over this. We need to work through this. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're my mother. You're my father. We're family. That's the way it ought to be in a church. And that's what they're doing. We're brothers. And so it sets it all in the right context. And then in verse 24, they acknowledge the problem at hand. Since we heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law. Well, they're acknowledging there's a problem and that the Gentile Christians have been troubled with words. Uh, You've been troubled with words. You know how we say, as kids, we say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Words can hurt you. And false teaching can really hurt you. Uh, false teaching can damn you. And he says, you, you, you've been troubled with words. They came in teaching a false doctrine, saying you must be circumcised, unsettling their souls. I'm glad it unsettled their souls. There's some that come in or somebody come in teaching something like that and nobody hardly notice. They would fall asleep or they wouldn't care. But it was bothering them because they said, we were told. We were promised that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we would be saved. And now you're changing the game. You're changing everything. They acknowledged the source of their trouble. Some, he said, who went out from us. They came from the Jerusalem church. Uh, they, they came from James, the brother of our Lord, is what Paul says in, in the book of Galatians, the leader in the church. Now, it was true. They did come from the Jerusalem church. What wasn't true was that the Jerusalem church never once approved or sanctioned anything they were teaching. And that's what they say. To whom we gave no such commandment. With that one statement, they sweep them away. 
That whole teaching is false. We flatly deny that it had any sanction of our church. By this statement, they denounce this teaching of a works-based salvation. And what they're doing is they're upholding the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. Restoring their peace, their unsettled souls are, are, will be composed again. And then in verses 25 through 26, notice it, it says, It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. So they're commending two of the men they're sending with the letter, these uh, Judas and, and uh, Barsabbas. Um, uh, yes, uh, Judas and, and Silas. I mean, uh, Judas and Silas. Uh, but then um, uh, he says, notice, uh, unlike these false teachers, these are sanctioned then. Uh, we're sending them with the letter. First, they're putting it in a letter, and that's a good thing. We're getting it down to writing. Nobody's going to get confused. No, they, did they really say, they didn't say that. Did they agree to that? No, they agreed. They signed it. They sent it. But they send these men with them. Uh, did they not trust Paul and Barnabas? Well, I'm sure they did, but Paul and Barnabas, they're the ones that were fighting against these men. They took it up to the church so there would be a resolve to this whole thing. And so they go back to give, uh, to give commendation to the letter itself. They came to make sure there's no misunderstanding, no miscommunication. They had written the document together with faithful men who would expound and explain it. Then notice they also commend Barnabas and Paul. I'm sure their reputations have been sullied through this whole thing. As you read any of Paul's letters, you know what the false teachers end up saying. Oh, Paul's a fake. Paul's, he's not a real apostle. Paul's this. Paul's that. He's out for the money. Whatever it might be. They throw all kinds of accusations. But they say, no, these men, Paul and Barnabas, our beloved Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are faithful men. They can be trusted. Uh, they were faithful. You see, false teachers don't often die for their teaching. Sometimes you'll find a real crazy one do it here and there. But these men really believed what they said. They were faithful men. And so they would expound and explain it. These, these men they sent with them, Silas and, and Judas, uh, they commend Barnabas and Paul. But I want you to remember how faithful these men were. Paul and Barnabas, when this false teaching first appeared in the church in Antioch. What a, what a blessing to have these men in the church. They recognize this is not right. This is not the gospel. It is not the gospel at all. And they were faithful shepherds. They were bold. They knew the Word of God. And they refuted them. Now, they took it on up. But I'm sure Paul refuted them quite well. All by himself. But they brought it to the church in Jerusalem. They refuted as well. Uh, Paul said in Titus chapter 1 that an elder must hold fast the faithful word as it's been taught so that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. For he said there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially says of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. And there were faithful shepherds in the church to stop them. 
We're going to let them get away with spreading this around. And we want to be careful even in our own church. And we don't have to do it much, but sometimes when someone comes in teaching something they shouldn't be teaching, we have to pull them aside and say, listen, we don't believe that's scriptural. And we let them know right away. And if it had to do with the gospel, we'd show them the door. If they were speaking against the gospel itself, that doesn't mean we show anybody the door if they don't agree with us 100%. That doesn't happen. We don't want that to happen. But when it comes to matters like this, matters of salvation, we're not going to hold back. And Paul and Barnabas did not hold back. And then in verse 27, they explain why they're sending Judas and Silas. They'll also report the same things by word of mouth. They're going to tell you exactly what went on here. And that will help you as well to settle your faith and understand these things have been taken care of. This is the gospel. This is what you're to do. This is what you're to follow. And then verse 28, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to lay no greater burden upon you than these necessary things. I like what Matthew Henry said. He said, the avoiding of fornication is necessary to all Christians at all times. The avoiding of things strangled and of blood and things offered to idols is necessary at this time for the keeping up of a good understanding between you, the Gentiles, and the Jews, and the preventing of offense. That's what they were doing by giving these extra regulations. They're, they're trying to keep the peace of the church. And then they conclude it with this word in verse 29. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. It doesn't say you'll be saved. You'll do well. This is the right thing. This is good. Again, Matthew Henry said, it will be for the glory of God, the furtherance of the gospel, the strengthening of the hands of your brethren, and your own credit and comfort. It will bless the church if you follow these simple rules. And then the letter was delivered and received in verses 30 and 31. And we see the response in verse 31 of the church. It says, after they delivered, when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And this this church was in trouble. This church was unsettled. This church was... uh, Churches are fragile things, you know. You might think it's just as strong as a rock. Sometimes it looks that way. And something happens. (laughs) Something happens. It could be anything. And all of a sudden, it's disturbed. And when the church is disturbed, it's like the old saying, Mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. In a church, that happens in the church. There's ripple effect. Things get spread around. All of a sudden, things are, are not so fragile. You, you might wonder, are we going to survive? Is it going to go on? And it's only by the grace of God that it does. But now the church is restored back to that place. How faithful uh, were these men. This, uh, helping the church in this way and blessing the church in that way. There's great dissension. Now there's peace. The gospel had been upheld. The only condition for being saved is putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. If you'll just turn to Him with a childlike faith and trust, He'll save you. That's what the message was to them. That's what the message is to us. That gospel was upheld. If it had been robbed, and and there have been times throughout the history of the church It had been so corrupted you couldn't see it. But they brought it out in all of its splendor and glory. 
What Christ did saves us, not what you do. Circumcision, you think that's going to change God's mind about a wicked sinner? Oh, what does change God's mind is His Son. What His Son did on the cross in paying the price for your sins. And if you put your faith and trust in Him, God has promised He will save you. That was upheld. The unity of the church was preserved. There's only one people of God. Some people say, well, let's just have a Gentile church and a Jewish church and we just won't ever speak to each other. No. Jews and Gentiles are to live together. There's to be even between these churches, this inner church communion and fellowship. That was preserved as well. Stuart Elliott said that things were better. It doesn't mean it was all over. This would crop up again and again throughout the church in the New Testament. And it continues all the way to this very day. Not the same issues of strangling and, and blood and all of that. But the gospel issue is always there. Somebody always wants to corrupt it, wants to add something to it. We need to stand fast in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We need to take this church or these churches as our example to preserve the truth of God. The church is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. The problem wasn't over, as Mr. Ali said, but it had been faced honestly and in God's presence. They did this openly. They let everybody talk. Give your side, your side. Let's debate. Let's discuss. They prayed. They sought God's face, His will. And they delivered a good response. And it preserved the church in Jerusalem. It preserved the church in Antioch. We need to do our best to stand fast in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do our best to preserve the peace and the purity of God's church. Don't ever be a part of anything that will cause a disturbance in the church. Controversy God will use, but you never want to be the source of that controversy. Not the negative source anyway. If you're not a Christian, you can learn from this. I know this is a difficult passage. I was telling the men before, I've got to talk about things strangled and drinking blood. How edifying is that going to be? Well, it is edifying if you understand they were trying everything to preserve the gospel and the unity of the church. It shows you the way of salvation is only through Jesus Christ. And these men would fight tooth and nail to preserve that truth so that you would hear it and I would hear it 2,000 years later and believe it and still be saved just like the Gentiles were. We're saved like Peter said, just like they were. Are you saved? That's a big question right now for you. Are you a Christian? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone? No other way, no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Would you please bow with me as we pray?